Hello, students. Welcome back to our podcast for Psych 1A with Professor Brittany Razziani. Today, we will be continuing Chapter 1, talking about psychological research. chapters for the week, I like to start with a mindful moment to help us calm ourselves, get settled and grounded so we can get the most out of the time that we're committing to our education. It doesn't really help us if we're running from one thing to the next and just trying to squeeze it in. If we can just take a few seconds to slow ourselves down, we're able to get so much more out of our day. And I certainly want to help you soak as much out of your education as you can. So whatever you're doing right now, maybe you're vacuuming as you listen to this, going for a walk, trying to soothe the crying baby, maybe you're sitting, whichever position you find yourself in right now, take a moment to slow down your thoughts and notice something that you can feel with your body, your physical sense of touch. Focus on that sensation for a few seconds. Now shift your attention to a color that you can see in the room or in the space that you're in. Now bring your attention to something that you can hear. As you're thinking about the things that are around you and as you're slowing yourself down, take a moment now to bring your awareness to your breathing. If you can, take a slow, deep breath in, letting your belly expand and fill with air. Hold it for a few seconds, then slowly exhale through your mouth. You're welcome to repeat this practice as many times as you need to throughout class or throughout your day in order to help you get grounded and be able to focus on what's coming next in your day. Oftentimes people are overwhelmed by the idea of a research project or research paper, and that's a common experience. It's normal to have. So what we're going to focus on with our course here in Psych 1A is what you need to know about research. So you need to know that not all research is done well. Just because it looks like it's a research paper, it has big fancy words in it, maybe they even have graphs and different pie charts and all sorts of images to help convey their point, doesn't mean that their point is accurate or that it really even matters. There have been some research projects that have been conducted about silly nonsense things and some research that has been conducted about very serious things but was conducted rather poorly. The results were very confusing, they didn't make sense, or the way in which the study was conducted seemed unusual or unreasonable given what they were trying to find out. So just because an article looks good, maybe it's attached to a big fancy university like Harvard or Stanford, or maybe even a big hospital like UCSF or Johns Hopkins, that doesn't mean we can turn off our critical thinking we still have to have that lens on as we're reading this research. So we wanna know how to read a study and see what the authors are really saying 
and identify who's who in the world of research. There are many different players in the game, and we probably won't even cover all of them in our lecture today. But just as an overview, here are some of the people that you might run into as you're jumping in now to the field of psychological research. So a psychologist is a person who holds an academic degree in psychology and has specialized training in one or more areas of psychology. The title of psychologist typically is reserved for those who hold a doctorate degree, although there can be people who have a master's degree or an undergraduate degree in psychology, the term psychologist is typically reserved just for those people who went all the way and got their doctorate. A psychiatrist is a physician. They're a medical health provider as well as a mental health provider. They specialize in the diagnosis and treatment of psychological disorders. They hold two doctorate degrees. These folks have been in school for a long time, 14 years most of the time. Their name is often followed by the letters MD and or PhD to indicate all of that time they spent in school and the specializations that they have. So they usually see clients or patients who have severe persistent mental illness, such as post-traumatic stress disorder, bipolar disorder, uh, borderline personality disorder, and they will oftentimes provide therapy as well as prescribing medication to support treatment for those individuals. Another player in the game is a psychiatric social worker. This is the term your book uses to reference these individuals. They're usually just called social workers. These are people who have some training in therapy methods that focus on environmental conditions that have an impact on mental disorders. These are social concerns such as poverty, overcrowding, stress, drug abuse, a lack of access to appropriate health or nutrition. So social workers have the framework of society, societal issues, societal concerns. They hold a master's degree or higher in social work, and their name is often followed by one of the following sets of letters. ASW, which stands for Associate Social Worker, MSW, who is a Master of Social Work, or LCSW, a Licensed Clinical Social Worker. So what's the difference between all these people? An Associate Social Worker holds their Master's degree, they went to school, they did their time, got the paper, and now they are pursuing their clinical license. So after you go to graduate school, you have to obtain over 3,000 hours of client contact, getting that additional experience and training to have a clinical license. Associates, ASWs, are working towards that. LCSWs have already accomplished that. They went to school, they got the degree, they did the hours, they took the big, big fancy board exam, and they are fully licensed. They are through with the clinical process. And an MSW is somebody who has a master's degree in social work, but not with the clinical track. So they are not going to be as adept at treating the mental health disorders or the clinical pieces like the therapy of people who may be in their care. Another player in the game is a psychotherapist. They're pretty similar to social workers. They hold a master's degree or higher, but it's in clinical counseling or psychotherapy. A psychotherapist specializes in relationships, the relationship a person has with their self, with other people, and between the self and the environment. Letters that follow these people tend to be AMFT, Associate Marriage and Family Therapist, or MFT or LMFT. 
So similar to social work, the associate marriage and family therapist has the degree and is working on their hours so they can take the board exam and have their full clinical license. The MFT slash LMFT, you see those interchangeably, that person has the degree, they did the hours, they took the exam, they are done. And finally, for our purposes today, the professional clinical counselor. Similar to a social worker or a psychotherapist, but their focus is really on just the individual and their journey to self-actualization. Their name is often followed by LPCC for Licensed Professional Clinical Counselor or APCC, Associate Professional Clinical Counselor, has their degree on the way to the clinical license. One of the questions we always ask when we're conducting any type of experiment, no matter what realm of science we may be part of, is why? What's the goal? What are we hoping to achieve here? So there is a common goal across the sciences to learn how things work and see where our biases might be leading us to see something in a different way or see something inaccurately. So one of the first goals that we have is to describe what is happening, especially in psychology. We'll observe a behavior and we'll note everything about it. What is happening? specifically what is happening, not just child is angry, but child through specific object. Did they throw it at a person? Did they throw it at the ground? How many times did they throw it? With how much force did they appear to throw it? Another goal is to explain why is it happening? This is like a hypothesis, a tentative explanation that'll lead us to a theory that we can test about why this is going on. The next step is a prediction. When will it happen again? If we do blank, then this will change or this will happen. And finally, control. How can it be changed? This is not always a part of research. Sometimes our goal is simply to gather information, especially if it is a very new area of study. Our sole goal may be observation. We're not really at explanation yet. We're hoping to get there eventually but we really just need to be paying attention to what's happening and gathering data so we know what questions to ask and where to go from there. Psychological research uses, utilizes the scientific method similarly to the other sciences. Although, as we'll see, it's a little bit messy when it comes to psychology because people are a little bit more complicated than we give them credit for. So the first step in the scientific method is perceiving the question, I wonder why this happens. I wonder why so many people seem depressed these days. Next step is to form a hypothesis. I think this is the reason. If this happens, then this happens. I think people are depressed because they don't spend enough time outside in nature. So if they spend more time in nature, then their depressive symptoms will go down. Next, I'm going to test my hypothesis and gather information. I'm going to take a bunch of people, see if they're depressed, and then take them outside and see if anything happens, if any changes occur. From that, I'm going to draw some conclusions. I took a bunch of depressed people outside, and these are the changes that I noticed. Then I'm going to report my results. I'm going to write it up in a fancy scientific paper, and I'm going to publish it and share it with the world so they can all see what I found.
at the heart of research is a good hypothesis. We want our hypothesis to be open enough to be true or false. We don't want to create a hypothesis that boxes us in. It can only be true or it can only be false. While it may make us look good and feel good that we were correct in our thinking, if we're not conducting good research, then our findings are really pointless. So we need to be open to possibilities when we're testing our theories. Proving a theory is false is being called falsifiable. The testable part of our hypothesis is where we use that if-then statement. If I take my depressed clients outside and they experience nature, then their depressive symptoms will go down. The depressive symptoms, then the depressive symptoms will go down. That's the part we're looking at to see if there's any changes with that. That's the part that we can test. When we're testing a hypothesis in psychology, you're trying to determine if the factor you suspect has an effect and that the results weren't due to luck or chance. This is why we repeat research studies. It may seem silly and like a waste of time and money. Someone already did this study. Why would we just duplicate the same thing they did? Well, if we can get the same results from multiple psychologists doing the same experiment over time with different participants and with different factors that are outside of our control, that means we're really on to something. But if we try to replicate the experiment and we get different results every time, we're not really getting at the question. We're not really getting where we want to be. So the approach to testing your hypothesis will depend on exactly what answer you think you might get. Oftentimes, people use a survey or an experiment to test their hypothesis. And remember, the goal is to get an explanation for a certain behavior. Once we've gathered information from our experiment or our observations, we'll need to find out if our hypothesis is supported or not. If the hypothesis is not supported, then we go back to that initial question and think of another explanation for what we've observed. Then begin the whole process again. Any data that comes from testing procedures has to be analyzed through some kind of statistical method that helps to organize and refine the data. If we haven't done that, if we just take our notes and go back to the office, that's called having raw data. It hasn't been assessed, it hasn't been analyzed, we haven't really made sense of it yet. There has to be a streamlined and uniform way that all of the researchers are interpreting and organizing their data. Otherwise, we have just a bunch of different opinions and we can't really draw any conclusions from that. And finally, we report our results. Let others know what you found, even if it didn't prove your hypothesis. You write up exactly what you did so others can replicate your research. Other people having a different perspective might be able to acknowledge what you did well and where things could be improved. They may be really beneficial to your experiment. This also allows other researchers to replicate your study. If they get the same results, it reinforces the strength of your study. And the more often people are repeating your study and getting the same results, it just proves your theory even more and strengthens the idea that you already had. In research, we ask questions, and it's important to differentiate questions that can be empirically studied using the five senses and those that cannot. A question that's really interesting, such as, what is the meaning of life, cannot be answered empirically. 
so it would be a pretty poor research topic. You wouldn't get very far. How would you go about trying to uncover the answer to that? Would you conduct a survey? What do you think 2,000 different people would say about what the meaning of life is? You'd have a pretty big array of answers. You wouldn't really be able to make heads or tails of any of your data. Another question could be, has life existed on Mars? We can answer this somewhat empirically. We have evidence that we've collected from Mars, so this could make a good research subject, although not in this class because this is psychology, not geology or aeronautics. One of the ways in which we gather data in the realm of psychology is through naturalistic observation. This is watching behavior in its natural environment. Many biologists use this strategy as well. Jane Goodall was notorious for spending a lot of time with different colonies of chimpanzees and primates. She would just be near them and observe them and even copy some of the behaviors that they did. She was in their environment watching them. This allows researchers to get a more realistic picture of how the behavior can occur. At times, there's participant observation, the naturalistic observation in which the observer becomes the participant in the group being observed. There are some disadvantages to naturalistic observation. There's the observer effect. This is when subjects realize they're being watched, so they behave differently. There's also observer bias. This is the tendency of observers to see what they expect to see. If I'm conducting a study about children with ADHD in elementary schools, and I decide I'm going to watch them at recess, I may be looking for a certain type of child. I may miss other things because I am so focused on what my idea about children with ADHD and how they would behave at recess would be. So I might miss other children with that diagnosis and how they might be behaving at recess also. So I'm seeing what I want to see. My research data is now skewed. There's also a problem with the inconsistency of observation as the natural environment changes. Those kiddos with ADHD that I was observing at recess in my theoretical study, what if it's raining and there's indoor recess? That would dramatically change the things that I'm noticing. So there's an attempted solution to this problem. It's called blind observation. Blind observers are people who do not know what the research question is and cannot have preconceived notions about what they should see. So they may receive instructions to look for children behaving in a certain way or to look for a specific thing in the environment. And they don't really know why. They just know to look for that thing. Like if I told you to look for all of the red things in your immediate area, you don't know why. You don't know what question I'm trying to answer. All you know is that you're supposed to look for red things. So you're going to look for red things and then tell me how many you found. Another method of observation is in a laboratory or in a controlled research setting, like with a two-way mirror. I know you've probably seen those on TV. They are real. So laboratory observation is where we get to observe behavior in a controlled setting. It's usually like a research lab. They kind of make them a little more like classrooms or conference rooms, so they're a little more comfortable. This gives the researcher more control, access to utilizing a variety of testing measures to gather data. 
So if I want to actually conduct some type of testing, maybe a survey um, or a questionnaire, or if I want to use blocks or dolls to ask kids certain questions, it's going to be a lot easier to do that in my office or in a lab instead of on the playground. But there is a pretty big disadvantage. This unnatural setting can induce white coat syndrome, where people tend to freeze up or feel really anxious when there's somebody with a clipboard or a doctor comes in with their white coat. There's that anxiety that this is an important person who's going to be examining me and asking personal questions and getting in my business. And this happens with adults as well as children, this white coat syndrome. Another method we use to gather information in psychology is a case study. Every now and then something happens that we simply cannot replicate. One such case that is very famous is Phineas Gage. Phineas Gage was alive in the 1800s and experienced a pole uh, being exploded through his skull. So it kind of went through his skull like a javelin, straight through. And there are pictures of this, not of Phineas Gage himself, but of drawings and computer renderings of what happened. That this pole, there was an explosion that propelled this pole through his face and he survived. Normally, you would hear someone had a pole exploded through their face, and you would assume that they did not survive. But it went through at just such an angle that Phineas Gage did survive. So clearly, we cannot replicate this in real life. We cannot ask people to risk their life by having a pole shoved through their face for the sake of science. We're not able to do that. So we gather as much information as we possibly can from doctor's reports, from drawings, any information we have about Phineas Gage in this unique situation, what parts of his brain were likely to have been punctured, ruptured, or injured that impaired his functioning later in life, but allowed him to continue living. This is also where the computer renderings come in so we can have an understanding without, of course, maiming or injuring another human participant. So in case studies, one individual is studied in great detail and researchers try to learn everything they can about that individual. A lot of times there's a tremendous amount of detail that's provided, especially if the case is unfolding and researchers can go and examine and ask questions as the situation is unfolding. And it may be the only way we can get data on certain events, like Mr. Phineas Gage. The problem is, though, that we can't replicate and generalize the data. So if we can't replicate the study, we can't have that strength in repetition of, you know, 38 other researchers conducted this study. They each had 200 participants and each one of them, that poll went through the same way and they had the same behavioral responses. So we know for a fact that these regions of the brain are responsible for these behaviors and actions. It would be cool to have that information, but again, we're not going to risk the lives of thousands of research participants to get that information. So when we can't replicate it and when we only have this one snapshot moment in time to gather this information, it is highly susceptible to our bias. The most common and preferred way that most people like to get their data is through surveys. You've probably taken surveys before, especially if this is not your first class. Uh, at the end of every semester, they usually ask students, what did you think of the instructor and the class? And you fill out a little on a scale of one to five, with five being 
most likely to refer to again and zero being I never want to hear from this professor again. That's a survey. You also get these when you make purchases online. Sometimes you get texts asking to uh, respond with how you feel about the carrier's service. There's surveys everywhere. We're a little inundated with surveys, but it's really convenient for researchers to use because they can send out hundreds of thousands of them without having to follow up and ask questions or do interviews. The data is pretty easy to interpret once it comes back like, oh, 5,000 people rated this service a four out of five. 6,000 people rated it a five out of five. Surveys are also great because they can be anonymous. You can gather private information. Like some studies that we're curious about should not involve naturalistic observation. If we are curious about sexual behaviors and sexual preferences in humans, we probably aren't going to want to sit around and observe that. We're going to use an anonymous survey to gather that information. These can be conducted in person or remotely, like over the phone, internet questionnaires. Some come through in text messages. And the delivery of questions is standardized. It's the same exact words every single time. Even the spacing on the page or the spacing in the email is exactly the same. They are uniform to all of the participants. Whereas when we ask questions in person, we may even say the same words like we're reading them off a page. But if you're really tired, your tone of voice and your body language could be very different than if you were alert and awake. And something that seems as small as that can actually skew a whole research project. In surveys, we have a representative sample. This is a randomly selected sample of subjects from a larger population of subjects. So I might want to send surveys to everyone in Santa Rosa City about their thoughts and feelings towards PG&E following the 2017 Tubbs fire. Or I might focus on neighborhoods that were hit the hardest, like Fountain Grove, Coffee Park, and Mark West. Those three neighborhoods would be intentionally selected samples of subjects. So I might narrow it down to those three neighborhoods, and then from the families listed as residing there during the fire, I would create a randomized list of families to send the survey to. Randomizing the list helps reduce bias. A population is an entire group of people or animals in which the researcher is interested. So the population from the example I just gave would be fire survivors. Representative of the population is a small group within the population of interest. And getting a diverse enough population sample is a challenge when you're handing out surveys. If I'm just sticking them in mailboxes, I'm not really sure who I'm giving them to. But am I going to be able to spend the time to really hone in on getting a diverse sample if I'm conducting a large survey? It can be hard to pull off. Another disadvantage is the low accuracy of participant self-report, especially when the survey is anonymous. If my name isn't attached to it, I might have a little more fun with that survey. I might be a little more honest. Um, if my name is on it, I may be a little less honest, depending on the questions that you're asking me. There's also the phenomenon that's known as the courtesy bias. This is where participants give the answer that seems most appropriate for the purpose of the study, rather than the answer that's actually true for the participant. So if we're asking about the efficacy of customer service, 
during the shelter in place. And the truth is, I'm pretty upset with the customer service at this particular store, but I feel really bad because their business got hit pretty hard, then I may be a little courteous in my responses and say, oh, you know, maybe it was a four instead of a three and try to throw them a bone, so to speak, or be nicer in my responses than maybe my feelings really indicate. The following statement is one of the most important aspects of all research that you need to know. Correlation does not equal causation. So what does that mean? Correlation is the relationship between two variables or two different things that we could be looking at. A classic example of this is ice cream consumption increases during the summer months. So we could look at some data and say that ice cream goes up in summer months, but so does recreational swimming at the local swimming pool. When swimming goes up, rates of drowning also go up. So if we were to look at two of these variables, drowning and ice cream consumption, we could make a connection that ice cream causes drowning. But we know that's not true. Ice cream doesn't cause drowning. The relationship is really that it's during the summer when it's warm. So people are engaging in each of those activities. They're not really related at all. But this is a mistake that's made in research all the time. Two variables are identified and a causational relationship is assumed. It's assumed that one of these things is causing the other, that ice cream is causing the drowning. On our Canvas site is a YouTube video from Khan Academy that explores more about how correlation and causation have this negative interplay when we're not being critical thinkers, when we're not being careful as we're looking at some research. The article they use comes from WebMD, and the title of the article is that eating breakfast can reduce obesity in teenagers. So the sound of that is, regardless of what I eat for breakfast, no matter if it's something healthy or if it's a bunch of Big Macs or some cold pizza left over from last night, that I'm going to lose weight by eating breakfast. And that's not true. That's not really what the article is even saying. It's a way of trying to get the reader interested. But imagine how many people saw that article title, assumed this causational relationship that eating breakfast reduces obesity and started eating whatever they wanted for breakfast without really considering other factors, other variables like the type of food that's consumed for breakfast. I strongly recommend that you either pause the recording at this point to check out that video or that you do so after you finish the recording as it does a fantastic job of illustrating why correlation does not equal causation. In research, when we're looking at correlation, the measure of the relationship between two variables, we're looking at what type of relationship there is, a positive relationship, a negative relationship, or if there's no relationship really at all. This is known as the correlation coefficient. It's a number that represents the strength and direction of a relationship between two variables. This number is derived from the formula for measuring a correlation, which for our purposes in Psych 1A, you do not need to know. 
If you want to know more about that, you will learn about correlational coefficients and research methods, which is Psych 1B, or in a statistics class. But the correlational coefficient is represented in research with the letter R. Statistical analysis yields a positive or negative number. This always ranges from plus one to minus one. The closer to one, positive or negative, indicates that there is a strong relationship. And if it's closer to zero, it indicates a weaker relationship. Graphing these correlations can help illustrate the direction of the existing relationship. So this might be something that you see in a research paper, a graph that illustrates it with a bunch of little dots. If the dots are all kind of going up together, it appears as though they are ascending. That is generally positive correlation. If those dots are grouped together in such a way that they appear to be descending or going down, that indicates negative correlation. And if there's a graph with dots that are just all over the place, it looks like you dropped a bag of candy on the ground and it's just scattered everywhere, that means that there is no apparent correlation between those two variables. In the slides on Canvas are three images of correlation scatter plots. These can help illustrate those relationships between variables. Let's focus now on the experiment itself. An experiment is a deliberate manipulation of a variable to see if corresponding changes in behavior will result, allowing the determination of cause and effect relationships. We're trying to figure out what causes this to happen. In selection, we're choosing participants or subjects that best fit the study's parameters. As I mentioned earlier in this podcast, we do try to aim for a randomized selection in order to have a diverse and unskewed or unbiased population group that we're working with, but this isn't always possible. There may be times where it's inappropriate to use random selection if you're trying to target a very specific population or answer a very specific question. There may be other extenuating factors as well that prevent random selection although random selection is still considered best practice in research. We're manipulating variables in our experiment. Variables are an element, feature, or factor that is liable to vary or change. So in the example I used earlier of considering summertime and that people are eating more ice cream, as well as doing more recreational swimming, the variables are the elements or aspects that we could control or we could manipulate. We can't change the season. We can't decide that it's suddenly winter. But what we can change is the availability of ice cream or the availability of swimming pools. And that may change the results that we see in our study. Those are variables we have control over. Operationalization is a specific description of a variable of interest that allows it to be measured. Let's talk a little more about variables. There are different kinds. An independent variable is one that is manipulated by the experimenter. Whereas the dependent variable is one that represents the measurable response or behavior in the subjects in the experiment. Confounding variables are those that interfere with each other and their possible effects on some other variable of interest. In the slides, there is an image of four plants. They are each receiving water and light. Some are receiving fertilizer. Fertilizer 
is a variable that the experimenter can manipulate, can control. It is independent in this case. The plant's growth or the plant's response to the application of the fertilizer would be the dependent variable because it represents a measurable response and it is the subject in this experiment. It's common in research to have multiple participant groups. One is the experiment group. These are the people who receive the drug or treatment that's being tested. They're the recipients of the manipulated variable. Then there's the control group. These people receive a placebo or no treatment at all. They do not receive the manipulated variable. So if you think back to our plants, our experiment group of plants received the fertilizer. The control group did not receive any fertilizer. This is to help eliminate the possibility of a variable we did not account for. Another example of control versus experimental group is evident in one of the images in our slides for this section. The experiment asks, will student test scores be affected by distracting sounds in the testing environment? So they have two groups of students who are taking a test. This is going to be the same test. We want to have as much similarity between these two groups as possible in order to reduce the possibility that these other factors, like having different test questions and resulting in different stress or anxiety, might be affecting the outcome of the experiment. So the control group is a group of students who are taking a test with a calm, kind of normal background. The experimental group is a different group of students taking the same test. However, there's a marching band uh, banging some drums and making quite a bit of noise in the background. Another common research method is called a blind study. A single blind study is one in which a subject does not know if they are in the experimental group or the control group. This is almost always the case because if our participants know that they are receiving the treatment or that they are not receiving the treatment, they are likely to act or behave in a different way. There are some rare occasions where participants do know if they received the medication or received the treatment that's being examined, but oftentimes the participant does not know. They are informed after the fact. Another common method of research is a double-blind study. This is one where the participant is unaware if they're in the control or experiment group, but also the experimenters don't know who's in the control and who's in the experimental group. This is yet another way of reducing bias and reducing the possibility that the experimenters, the researchers, could be skewing the study because they have this knowledge that the participants don't. And we do know when there is that power dynamic, that power differential between somebody who holds information or who holds power and someone who is in a position of less power, that we act and behave differently. Let's check in with a few comprehension questions to see how we're doing with our understanding of psychological research and where we may need to go back and re-listen to parts of this episode or reread the textbook, the transcription, whatever it is that works best for you. So question one, Dr. White noticed something odd happening to the behavior of his students as midterm exams neared. 
He decided to take notes about this behavior to find out exactly what was happening and the circumstances surrounding the behavior. His goal is clearly A. Description B. Explanation C. Prediction or D. Control In question one, Dr. White is hoping to explain the circumstances. He's hoping to figure out what the circumstances surrounding that behavior are, why it's happening. Let's scoot on now to question two. Which of the following is an example of observer bias? A, you ask your fellow students to be part of a study on adult memory. B, you ask people from your church to participate in a study of family values. C, you develop an opinion of what you expect to see in an experiment. D. You allow a student to quit an experiment simply because she is bored. The answer here is B. Observer bias is present when you ask people from your church to participate in a study of family values. That population sample is pretty small. It's going to be very limited, and it's a people, a group of people who voluntarily gather together because of the same beliefs and values that they have. So while you may gain some insight about what your church friends and family think about family values, it's not going to be a good representative of what people think of family values at large. Question three. Which of the following indicates the weakest relationship and would thus be close to complete randomness? Is it A, a positive correlation of 1.04, B, a negative correlation of 0.089, C, a positive correlation of 0.01, or D, a negative correlation of 0.98? The correct answer for question three is a positive correlation of 0.01. Because of the four options we have available to us, it is the furthest away from one. And remember that the closer we are to one, the stronger the correlational relationship is, whether it's positive or negative. Our final question, number four. In an experiment examining the effects of sleep deprivation on completion of a puzzle, one group is allowed to sleep while the other is made to stay awake. In this experiment, the control group is A, the group that gets to go to sleep, B, the group that is made to stay awake, C, the puzzle, or D, the difference in time for each group to complete the puzzle. The correct answer is A, the group that gets to sleep. Sleeping is part of the normative human experience. Being forced to stay awake would be part of the experiment. And the puzzle and the difference in time for each group are not considered part of the control group. The control group refers to the group of participants who are not being subjected to the medication or treatment that is being offered in the experiment. Our final topic in psychological research is around ethics. 
So you might remember from our previous episode in talking about behaviorism specifically, experiments including some young children who went by the pseudonyms of Little Peter and Little Albert. So these were experiments in which ethical considerations were not advised, they were not followed through on, they weren't really even in people's thinking at that moment in time. There had not been a discussion yet about how people were to be treated if they were to be involved in psychological experiments. So even though we learned some fantastic information from those experiments about conditioning fear, they traumatized the participants, and today they would never make it past an ethics review board. In fact, it's because of this and other horrifying experiments that we have an institutional review board. The Institutional Review Board, or IRB, insists on these common ethical guidelines. First is people first, science second. The rights and well-being of participants must be weighed against the study's value to science. Second, participants must be allowed to make an informed decision about participation. They must be made aware of the study's aims and what's involved. This is called informed consent. Number three. Deception must be justified. Participants must know about any deception used in experiments after completion. This is called a debriefing once the experiment is done. During the informed consent process for those experiments that use deception, participants are made aware that deception will be used or may be used. They're not given any details about it so as not to skew the experiment itself, but they are made aware that there is a possibility or a strong likelihood that deception will be used. Number four, participants can withdraw from the study at any time for any reason. Maybe they don't feel like it. Maybe they just don't have the time to commit to the experiment anymore, or they don't have to give a reason at all. If a participant wants to withdraw, we cannot stop them. Number six, investigators must debrief participants, regardless of whether deception was used or not. Number seven, data must remain confidential. As an example, we still refer to little Albert as little Albert, even though we think we know what his real name is. And number eight, the researcher is responsible for detecting and removing or correcting undesirable consequences. Even if deception was not used in the study, it is the responsibility of the researchers to debrief all participants. And if there was any harm that was done unintentionally or intentionally, whether it's medical or in a mental health capacity, it is the responsibility of those researchers to ensure that referrals are made so those participants can obtain the care that they need. This brings us to the conclusion of Chapter 1, covering Introduction to Psychology as well as Psychological Research. Please do make sure that you read Chapter 1 from the textbook and follow up with either the transcription of these episodes or the slides to make sure that you are getting all of the information that you need. In addition, do check out the YouTube videos that I've shared on the Canvas page as they really help reinforce the concepts that we've learned in this chapter.